Hello all and welcome back to another episode of the Strategic Whimsy Experiment. My name is Jennifer Hahn. And I'm Sarah Callen. And the Strategic Whimsy Experiment is a weekly gathering place filled with conversations about the films that shape our lives. Today, we're going to be reviewing the much-anticipated film that's gotten a lot of buzz, Judas and the Black Messiah. And we are joined by a very special guest who all of you listeners have probably heard uh, all of her comments and and whatnot. She's been uh, a regular here on the podcast, Carisha. She's back. Carisha, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello. I'm Carisha. It's so nice to be back. Thank you, ladies, for having me. Of course. We always get into the best conversations, so it's it's perfect. And this film is going to be a great one for us to dive into together. All right, Sarah, do you want to kick us off with an IMDb summary for this film? Yes. The story of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his fateful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. All right. So this is such an, a perfect follow-up to um, a lot of our discussions from the previous film that we got to watch together, which was The Trial of the Chicago, Chicago 7, where um, a lot of these same real-life people and our conversations about them were discussed then. So we get to dive into a lot more of Fred Hampton's story, which is going to be great. All right, so let's start off with our one-sentence summaries for this film per our usual tradition. Carisha, do you want to kick us off? Okay. <laughs> so I said, America's biased commitment to demonize movements of some as opposed to others continues today. Yes, so true. It was, it was harrowing to see how much is still very much the same all these years later. For sure. Sarah, what was your one-sentence summary? Mine is, no one is just one thing. Ah, I'm intrigued to hear more about your thoughts on that. Sarah, I love yeah. that. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, good. Jen, what was yours? Mine was a film that shows us the diverging paths between the sacrifices laid down for justice or prioritizing self-preservation above all. Very accurate. All right. So what were your initial thoughts of this film, Judas and the Black Messiah? Let's dive right in. Carisha, do you want to go first? <laughs> Um, I liked it. The, uh, I call myself amateur historian in me, uh, wish there were, you know, a few pieces that would have been, um, I guess tackled a little bit more, a little bit better, but overall I liked it. Um, and I was just really glad that, you know, this younger generation got to learn about, um, someone who is just, always sparks such intrigue and inspiration um, for me. Um, so I was I was really happy about that. Yeah, I had that thought while watching this film. Um, so much of these stories I did not learn about growing up in school in any of our history lessons, whether it was, you know, 
um, in high school or even in my college history classes. And I feel like that is such a gap. Like we, I'm so grateful that there are films that are being released like this that are telling these stories and um, probably teaching and opening a lot of people's eyes to parts of our history that frankly, it's not, it's not really taught. Um, so I'm intrigued, Krisha, specifically on like the, the parts of the film that um, you thought could have been represented more accurately as well from a historical perspective, because I, I found myself going down the Wikipedia rabbit hole after this film, just feeling like, oh my gosh, there's so much of our history that I just wish I had so much more time to dive into when I want to read more about, because there's, there's so much that is not um, talked about regularly. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things, or I'll start with the good, right? Um, so I did appreciate how they brought forth like the Rainbow Coalition um, and then the food programs they talked about. Um, because I feel like, I think even still to this day, the Black Panther Party um, has been you know, like demonized in the way that they're portrayed and the way that they're talked about. Um, when really the, like the start of the Black Panther Party was, you know, it was nothing like the Ku Klux Klan, which it's interesting in that scene where the uh, FBI, they like, you know, compare it to that. And that's exactly what it was not. It was um, to help struggling African-Americans to, um, it was it was the 1960s version of, you know, like Colin Kaepernick's kneeling of today, standing up against the police brutality that was happening to many black Americans in the inner city. Um, so I, I appreciated that they, you know, that the directors did it, or writers, directors tried to do their best to, you know, show audiences, hey, this is exactly what the Black Panther Party was not. Like, they were not like the KKK. Um, but I do wish that, like, Fred Hampton was even more than what you saw in the film. Um, he really, it was a fight for justice. It was a fight for basic needs for people of color. And I just, I wish that they would have delved even more into that um, and maybe shared some more of the great things that he did. Um, I almost felt like there was a little too much attention on O'Neill, but at the same time, there was this part of me that that asked the question, what was it that O'Neill really was looking for? You know what I mean? Like, it, the, I, I just feel mm -hmm. like there were layers to him as well. Um, and so I kind of, I didn't want more of him, but I really feel like the audience should have got a little bit of that. Um you know, they entice him with the money. It's, you know, the whole, it's everything Fred is fighting for, you know, so, you know, that black people can move forward. And that's really what O'Neill wants is the money, the, the accessibility. So I don't know. Those are, I know that's kind of a lot, but that's where I am. No, I, I think that that, that's great. Um, I, I came to at this movie similar to Jen, like I knew nothing about Fred Hampton. And um, I don't think that like when I was in school, what I remember of being taught like about the civil rights movement and this time period was about Dr. King. And we got like a little bit of time on him and then like Malcolm X and the Panthers, like they were also in the mix, but like 
it was almost like they were labeled as doing it the quote unquote wrong way. And like Dr. King's way was the quote unquote right way of fighting for civil rights, at least the way that that's how I remember my education being. So even this like like us dipping our toe into the life of Fred Hampton was really illuminating for me because I knew nothing about him. So this, I did the same thing, Jen. I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole and like one of my goals for 2021 is to learn more about these um, like civil rights leaders that I know nothing about. So this was a great like introduction into him. But one of the things that I was really struck by, and this kind of goes back to um, your summary, Carisha, is um, how similarly in like the food programs and like the taking care of um, the community uh, of the Panthers is so similar in some ways to the Black Lives Matter movement of today. And um, there's so much depth to both of those organizations that isn't portrayed in in the media. And that's not, you know, the Panthers aren't known for, you know, feeding 3,000 kids breakfast. You know, they're not known for the the clinics. And it's just, it's such a shame that we we label people and organizations for just this one thing instead of actually seeing like, no, they actually did a lot of good. And like Fred Hampton, from the little research that I've done, was incredibly strategic and aware of what was going on politically and socially. And he figured out a way to navigate those waters in such a unique way to to help uplift his community. And it's just, it's it's such a shame that he has not been celebrated for all the good that he did. So it was nice to see his story told this way. And hopefully it'll encourage people like me who don't know anything about him to research him further and learn more about his life um, and just see how, how much he contributed to Chicago and to the U.S. as a whole. So good, Sarah. Absolutely. It's one of the the really, I think, interesting parts about the power that film has. And um, I know Sarah and I have talked about this in the past, like just the way that this film being released and uh, being advertised and, you know, platforms like HBO and whatnot, like having them as their their big splash images on the homepage are able to direct people's attention, which is so hard to do in this like attention economy today with social media and and all of the the entertainment options we have that people are able to um, see things about our country, about our history, and uh, have our eyes opened in ways that maybe would not have been accessible through other paths or other mediums. Like I, I love that this film is being funded and released. And I know it was nominated for a bunch of Golden Globes, which I was very pleased by. Like there's, there's a infiltration into kind of like the mainstream um, attention that I'm so grateful for because there's so much like, like Sarah mentioned that I didn't know about. And I'm curious to see like the way that the Google searches have 
um, changed and if there's an increase in the number of people that are Googling information about Fred Hampton and the Rainbow Coalition and Bill O'Neill and and kind of all that unfolded with the FBI and whatnot, because that's a powerful way to educate people without um, forcing it down their throats or having to coax them to pay attention to these stories that really, really matter. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's great to see, like you said, like a, a platform like HBO Max and uh, just like willing to showcase this prominently. So I hope more people will will see it and will will learn more about this, even if it doesn't, um, I don't know, paint the story as fully as maybe it could have. Um, this is like the 101 level, and then we just we'll just need like a like a 201 level on Fred Hampton's life in the future. <laughs> I'm down. Like that would be great. Um, but I love Sarah that you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement and just the things that are, um, you know, that I guess the I call them those code words or code phrases mm-hmm. that are used that talk about exactly what Black Lives Matter is not, Um, you know, that they're Marxist and they're violent terrorists. But, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is doing a lot of great things for um, the African-American communities Um, in Chicago in particular, um, in and around like uh, Missouri. Like, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Representative or Congresswoman Cori Bush. many great things that they're doing, but none of that gets talked about. And so I feel like it was the same thing with the Black Panther Party and just the interesting um, similarities, like all these years later. Um, And like, it goes back to what Sarah just said. I'm so glad that this 101, this story um, is out there so people can, you know, see for themselves, but also research for themselves. Maybe the people that have always been told that Black Panthers were terrorists, you know, now they can, you know, dive into it more and find out it was actually the opposite, you know. And even like a a rudimentary search, like I went down a a Wikipedia rabbit hole this morning, just kind of diving into these different subjects. And it's pretty horrifying what the FBI was doing at this time. And um their their attempts to disrupt and um you know vilify these different groups is just i i guess i'm i'm still uh naive enough to be shocked by these things yeah. but it it was pretty appalling reading through some of the things that um that were done and it of course makes me wonder um like you both referenced in your summaries like how much of this kind of behavior is still going on today? And like, I don't want to be like conspiratorial, but man, it's, it's astonishing the amount of evil that we as human beings can inflict on other human beings. And I don't know that we always reckon with that fact. So true, Sarah. Yes. Especially seeing just how much power those systems have um, and how challenging it is for individuals or even just uh, unified groups of individuals. I just, I felt that like sense of 
um, David and Goliath just in in watching this film, um, you know, when their their haven and their kind of headquarters is completely blown up, like just that feeling of being crushed by the system. Um, it 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 really is a, a a challenging thing to bring about um, change, and it takes time, and it takes as Fred Hampton mentioned, like the power is with the people, and it requires people coming together and unifying across many different groups that he was able to unify together um, to go against an entire system. I mean, like the ways that they um, charged him, I think it was with something related to ice cream and putting him in jail as a way to what they called neutralize him. Like there's so many tactics that are available to these systems and institutions um, that just make it extra daunting to, to really affect change. And it was inspiring to see the way that um, their communities really came together and were resilient in dealing with those blows and building back again um, to continue for the justice that they believed was possible. Like, I, I really feel like if I were them, I, I, I would have probably become a lot more cynical and disillusioned and um, my spirits would have been dashed so much quickly, so much more quickly than um, they were. So I really admired their resilience amongst it all. Yes, for sure, girl. And I think one of the um, most astonishing things that I learned, you know, perusing IMDb after the film was over, was that Fred Hampton was only 21 when he was assassinated, which is just mind-blowing to me that such a young man could be so articulate and could create such movement, but also be wise enough to create such unity within the community. It just, it, I had so much respect for him watching what I saw on screen, but then to find out that he was so much younger Mm -hmm. in real life than we saw was powerful. And then to make it even more ridiculous, Bill O'Neill was only 17. Are you kidding me? I was shocked. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Like, I I am speechless with how just wrong that is. I mean, all of it is wrong. But the fact that he was a child and was forced to do this is just, oh, my gosh, it's unreal. I, oh, my gosh, Sarah, yes. <laughs> the, the fact that he was 17, which kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago, like, when you're 17... You're living in poverty, mm-hmm. um, you know, in and out of trouble for petty crime. And the petty crime was to make money to survive. When you go to a 17-year-old and you're like, hey, will you do this? And I'll give you a little bit of money here, a little bit there. Of course, you know, he was going to do it. And so that's why I said I really feel like I would have loved to have, because I don't think the movie touched on how young he was, to really put that into perspective for people. Yeah. Yeah. I, it would have been such a different movie if, and I mean, the, the actors that they cast did a phenomenal job. They, they were excellent, but if they had been able to find younger people to portray both Bill O'Neill and Fred Hampton closer to their actual ages, um, I, I think, 
I don't know, the, the movie would have been maybe more impactful in some ways. Agreed. <laughs> that was my like number one argument against it. They should have cast people that were closer to the age of them. Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel, I can't say his last name, they are phenomenal and were phenomenal. But oh my goodness, the power that it would have had if they were, you know, cast as, you know, maybe a 21-year-old or a 17, 18-year-old, you know? Yeah, I just think about those scenes with um, O'Neill sitting at this is across the table from Roy Mitchell and like just visually the stark contrast of this young boy kind of being manipulated and controlled yeah. and enslaved by this FBI. I feel like that visually and like those scenes would have felt very different than they did they played out where, you know, I think with Keith is 29 years old and um, he just looks older. Oh, I think those whole, all those scenes would have played out and affected the viewer so differently. Absolutely, Jen, because I think you wouldn't have been as mad at O'Neill. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and the tragedy of it all is O'Neill took his own life eventually. And I mean, the whole situation was just tragic all the way around. But I, I like I said, I just really wish that people could have seen a child sitting across the table from that grown man being manipulated. I think it would have had a different effect for sure. And even like his his initial crime of boosting cars using a badge like that shows not only he's been through some stuff obviously but he's also really intelligent and it uh, you're right Krisha it would have been so much more tragic had they been closer to their actual ages did you guys okay so something that kind of stood out to me was the other informant, the selection of their informants. They were always other African-American men, um, which was crazy to me. Like, I, I don't know. What did y'all think about that? So the fact that they chose uh, men in the movement instead of like women in the movement or, you know, other groups potentially. No, like the FBI, like when they would choose to it, like insert informants, they would always choose, um, you know, these other other Panthers or other African-American men. And that was another like thing that really, I guess, stood out to me because, you know, then they wouldn't expect it. Does that kind of make sense? So it was like, you know, just taking advantage of that and just because the I don't know if you guys remember the scene on the stairs when mm-hmm. um, the guy is, you know, talking to Bill O'Neill about what he did to a rat. But then we find out later on that he was actually the rat that the FBI was using. And so they were just kind of manipulating all these different little little boys in in this movement. And that just I don't know, that really stood out to me and was kind of bothersome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think it just reinforces the um the the callousness and the evil of, you know, the that group in the FBI at the time um that they had such little regard for for human life that they didn't care if 
you know, the informant got caught. They didn't care if the informant even killed anybody. Like it, they just didn't care. And I think, yeah, I think that that choice um, is just another kind of subtle way to reinforce just how evil that operation was. And just how much they they were able to hold over uh, these these informants as well, and like you see that in the scenes where uh, Roy is asking O'Neill to to draw the uh, blueprint for Fred Hampton's um, apartment or his home, and you see the way that he holds over him the story of what happened to the other informant, and I just kept thinking like. O'Neill is he's he's enslaved by the system like he has no choice other than like protect his own life or like sell out this entire um, community of people that he I think in the film genuinely believes is is fighting for justice that he also desires for but he's like forced up against the wall to to make these decisions um and so there's just so much power that's like wielded over him and he's just being used by the system, which I have to say, like, I, I was surprised by in the ending scene, the, the text that um, would go across the screen and specifically the one that talked about how O'Neill continued to be an informant, but also be part of the Black Panther Party for many, many years after this whole incident. I I didn't expect that. Um, And I'm still like processing and chewing on that because uh, I felt like in this film, you saw the way that he felt so torn between like what he felt obligated to do or this this system that he was um, taking part in with the FBI and then also his his own personal convictions of fighting for justice. And I was surprised to see that he maybe continued on that for, for a long time. And ultimately like his guilt or his conscience really caught up to him by the end of his life. And, you know, when the docuseries was released, like he was really faced with it. And so I, I was curious, like what those years look like for him. Like, was he having to just reconcile, uh, his decisions that he made and kind of swept them under the rug and, um, fool himself for a long time before he, you know, it all came crashing upon him. Like I was intrigued to know more about him. Jen, that's a good point. And I personally, I could be wrong, but I think it goes back to what you were just saying a second ago, like wielding the power over them. And I say them because it wasn't just him, you know, that they use, but I think it's, you know, they've been in and out of jail. Let me, let me wield the power of, do you want to, do you want to go back to jail? Do you want me to pin something on you? And I really think that that fear um, is what real. I think that's what got these men on board. Um, you know, at, at that point, you know, prison population is soaring with people of color. They don't. They've got you know more than likely they've got relatives that are in there. They've seen it. They've heard it. They've been in there before. And I really, really think that it was just a fear of going back and knowing that these FBI informants had the power to pin anything on them and make it stick. 
Um, and so I think that was hard for O'Neill and for so many. Um, do I, you know, continue to cooperate and live free and they'll give me a little, you know, I feel like I have a little bit of power. I have a little bit of money in my pocket or tell them no and end up dead or in prison. Yeah, that's so true. Um, there's this, uh, interview that Lakeith Stanfield did and he has some like really interesting thoughts on the way that his journey in playing the role of O'Neill, uh, changed his perspectives on him. Um, he talked about, you know, that he'd initially written him off and that he was just kind of this villain character who had sold out and, um, betrayed the party and like was unforgivable and in his actions and what he did. But then he says this, he says, you might think that you're going to do one thing, but when you have two options and one option seems like a bad option and one option seems like a less bad option, you're most likely going to choose the less bad option. Pointing out Hampton who put his life on the line for his beliefs is an exception to that rule. Bill O'Neill is more of what you see every day walking around, people who are going to take the easier route out than the harder one. And I, I feel like that is so true. I mean, I just think of those, you know, psych studies of folks that um, say that in a time of crisis, they would be self-sacrificing for what they believed was right. But ultimately, like there is this other very powerful part of human nature that is about survival and like protecting ourselves and our safety and the way that that can also be manipulated by these systems. Um is, is really powerful. And as, as much as I think, uh, I personally too would, would say that I would do the right thing. It's, it's so much harder in that moment with all those forces and those fears and the guilt and, and whatnot to really do and make the right decisions, which makes Fred Hampton and the rest of the, the people in the black party and everyone who's fighting for this movement so much more admirable. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that, that scene um, where, uh, what was it, the Crowns gave uh, Fred Hampton that money saying, like, you can go away. And everybody's planning on how they can, you know, smuggle him to, to Cuba or to wherever just so that he and uh, Deborah were safe. And that moment when he just went, nope, I, this is not about me. And we're going to build another clinic with that money. Like, I, my jaw hit the floor because you just don't see that, you know, like you, you're doing like fictional superhero characters, but like rarely in real life do you see people who are willing to be that self-sacrificing. And especially when, you know, you had seen him, you know, grappling with, um, knowing that he is willing to die for the cause, but also having a child that he wants to live for and him still being able to say, nope, the community is more important. This movement is more important. I was just, I was in awe of that. Definitely, girl. Especially when he also says, like, ultimately this this whole thing is not about me it's not about this one person like there is this humility in his leadership and he is no, not seeking glory 
for himself, but truly pointing to the thing that they're fighting for and, and kind of aligning everyone's um, postures and attention rightly as well and taking that focus off of him. Like what an incredible example of, of true leadership. And he was 21 when he was leading like that. Like, do you know any 21-year-old that's going <laughs> to act like that? It blows my mind. Nope. <laughs> so another really important character who we haven't really talked about all that much was, is Deborah, Fred's fiance. Um, and I just... Dominique Fishback is the actress who played her, and she was just phenomenal. Like, even in the the moments where she was kind of like a background character, like, there were certain moments where she just caught my eye and completely stole the show from some really other incredible actors. And I think that, you know, it would have been so easy for Deborah's role to be kind of small, insignificant, but I, I kind of appreciate that this film was willing to take us into Fred's life and and really get us to spend time with Deborah and get to know her. Um, yeah, I, I think that that was such a strategic decision. And I think that it was a really good one to not only humanize Fred, um, but also just introduce us to this really incredible woman who is important to this particular movement. I completely agree. And she just uh, brought such a, a tenderness and a, a sweetness and a warmth coupled with this like fierce strength. Um, yeah, it, she, was, she was incredible. And I, I think she – part of the purpose that she served like just watching this story is seeing just how – much that these these events that happen, these assassinations that happen are not just about that one person as as awful as that is, but it's the effect that it has on entire communities and families and people's hopes for their future together that are dashed and that are cut short because of kind of the the atrocities that are that are done. So I think that um, bringing us as the viewers like more intimately into their lives, you know, their, their tender moments together, their just talks um, late at night before bed about this child that they're going to bring into the, the world together um, really serve as such a stark contrast to all that happens in the end of this film. And I, I do love that there was that wrestling with both of them of you know, we're, we're so excited about this life and what we've created, but at the same time, like we know the realities of the situation. And, um, I, I like that this film was willing to, to go there and have them really like flesh out that having a baby while exciting was also kind of terrifying for them and brought up a lot of, questions within them. And so I, I think it was also important for us to wrestle through those with them for just a few minutes. I agree, Sarah. Um, 
Because I think a lot of times, like, people forget that, you know, Deborah existed or that there was a child, you know, on the way. And so I did appreciate how they, you know, let us in on that story and, and that, you know, that human part of Fred. Even that that one scene that is so sweet when they are first like beginning their romance and he is he gets all shy and it just it serves as this like other dimension of him because I think sometimes um, films can really lionize these like large larger than life inspirational figures um, but there is just like the sweetness in that there are little touches and little moments that the film is able to give us a little peek into, I think was, was really wonderful. I love that scene. Yes, it's so I adorable. It's <laughs> like, I didn't Agreed. know all shy. <laughs> so another one of the little like asides that we went on uh, that I really appreciated was the little, uh, the, the plot about Jake Winters. Um, especially that scene with Fred Hampton and Jake's mom. And just it, this movie really, really had me thinking about like the way that we remember people and the way that we, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, the way that we remember people, the way that we memorialize people, you know, it, it's sad that this loving kid who was so kind to people and was so polite will be known as this kid who killed a cop and was killed by the cops and that was not a reflection of who he was so I just I love that this film kind of reminds us that you know a person's life is not based on one event but you know we can create space we can make room for that nuance that humanity is complex and people are more than one thing and we can maybe try and be a little bit more understanding for like somebody's whole experience instead of just defining them by one thing and I think that that was just it the film didn't have to go there and it didn't even have to include Jake Winters but I I think that that was another kind of important moment to just I don't know, encourage us to be maybe a little bit more nuanced in the way that we think of and talk about people. Mic drop, Sarah. I love it. <laughs> yes, that's so true. Especially because that whole night, I think, began because he he just wanted to know what happened to his friend. Yep. Um, he was in the hospital. Like, his, his whole this whole night started from his love and his concern and his investment in, in his friend. It's just so interesting. Thankfully we have movies like this who can give us, oh man, maybe a more complex picture of situations than we would ordinarily paint for ourselves. So, Another kind of theme throughout that I thought was so fascinating was this idea of discipline and like that that moment when Fred was arrested and Deborah is upset and she is making sure that you know that this is not right. And he even turns to her and is like, discipline, calm down, 
It's going to be okay. Like I was just kind of in awe of that. Like I, I don't think that I could be that disciplined in a moment. Like if I'm being unjustly arrested, I'm going to raise some hell. And so like the fact that they were just so disciplined and they made sure that that was part of what they did was just, it was so captivating to me. Like I, that's, that's an aspect that I didn't maybe expect and was just really impressed by. I don't, I don't think that I have that much self-control. That's so true. And I wonder if, if some of that also just is from necessity and like prior experiences of that not, not playing out favorably for them because of this um, tense relationship with police and the way they've seen that um, cause more harm for them. Like I, I'm thinking about that scene where uh, O'Neill is like opening up the trunk and talking about all these explosives and how he, he's he's saying like we need we need to go bomb city hall and whatnot and um i think fred hampton says to him like what's that gonna do for us they're just gonna come and kill so many more of us like we there's a level of like strategic thinking and the way that they've seen these like incredibly um impulsive decisions just not just not not play out well for them and so i wonder if also part of that is like this this necessity that they they are forced to um, have to hold all of that emotion in, um, and like you mentioned, Sarah, like I I too don't think that I would able to be able to be as um, I don't even know what the word is, uh, but disciplined about it. But man, this this film really asks us to like think about what if we were in their shoes, how would we respond and how does that look so different from how they do? And, and, uh, I think it just thinking about myself in their shoes really just creates a sense of awe in me for just how much was on the line for them, how much was sacrificed. Yeah. Jen, I think you brought up a really good point because like, you know, hearing you both say, I would have spoken out or, you know, like I wouldn't have been calm. I think I can even say um, I would have had to, as a woman of color, remember exactly what Fred was saying. Behave, don't get out of character. I think they were like they adhered to that as best that they could for the simple fact that, you know, your life could be extinguished by a law enforcement officer then at the, like a, you know, the drop of a hat. Um, and no one would be punished for it. And so rather than end up just another casualty, I think that they complied that they, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, um, you know, create more trouble for myself than, you know, than there has to be. So I totally understand where he's coming from. And I think the frightening thing is a lot of that still carries over into today. And we see that with um, the murders, you know, that happen um, at the hands of police officers. So I would have responded like Fred, like remembering, you know, being very strategic um, about the way I approach that. And it's kind of a sad reality, but that's that's kind of life for some of us. Yeah, 
yeah, a, a sad reality is right. And I, I think movies like this, you know, set in the past, um, it's, it's pretty, I don't know, horrifying how some things really haven't changed. And, you know, like we've, we've reviewed a few of these movies that are set in the past in this time period. And it's, it's really, it's a shame for lack of a better word that we haven't been able to meaningfully move forward uh, in the, what, 50 plus years since the, the events that took place in this movie. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's unfortunate. One of the other things that this film explores a little bit, especially through Deborah's storyline, is um, the fact that words have power. And in one of the first interactions that she has with uh, Fred Hampton, after one of his speeches, she says, like, you are a poet. And I feel like that is is so true. And in a lot of the scenes where he is speaking to um, the community or he is, they are together saying like, I am a revolutionary. And you see kind of the, the way that that is instilling in them a, a spirit and a conviction and um, the strength to continue fighting. It, it was just incredibly powerful to see. And I, I think the way that that has like translated in our more modern times is just um, the way that words on social media and posts and people sharing their stories um, is powerful. And the when that can infiltrate into, I think I had mentioned this earlier, kind of this attention economy and um, into the feeds that we are scrolling through, it becomes part of the conversation for everyone and not just for a specific group of people that are fighting for this, but we like the rainbow coalition can come together in unity and in diversity as well. And so um, I think this film is just like a reinforcement of the way that words are incredibly powerful and communicate ideas. Um, you know, we saw this in One Night in Miami as well, just this exchange of ideas and the way that um, that can move mountains and inspire people and speak life into people and instill them with with strength. Like, it's it's incredibly powerful. So this film and that, that storyline with Deborah, I think really is a great depiction of that. Yeah, and it, it's so easy to take words for granted um especially with you know social media like you can just like fire off a tweet whenever you want post something on instagram throw something up on facebook like but i think we forget the power of our words and i i loved that both fred and deborah they studied malcolm x's speeches and he was such a deliberate and incredible orator and they both learned from him and were able to incorporate some of some of his words into their work and at points his words were what helped keep them going and you know in a word or in a time when words are so cheap 
uh, it was nice to see them held in such high regard. All right. Anything else that we wanted to talk about, mention in Judas and the Black Messiah before we wrap up? I would just like to give a shout out to the car that uh, Lakeith Stanfield was driving. (laughs) Because if you notice, the way that he was driving, he was really having to crank that steering wheel because they probably didn't have power steering in that sucker. So I just really appreciated how hard he had to work every time he was driving. It was very satisfying. Oh my gosh, I love it. (laughs) Man, that detail flew way over my head. (laughs) He had to make such big movements with the wheel and he was like constantly like muscling it out. It was great. It's like, wow, you're getting a workout driving that car. It's fantastic. I'm very thankful that we have power steering today. (laughs) The inside of Sarah's brain must be a magical, magical place. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. (laughs) I want to just hang out in there for a little bit. (laughs) I I think it's probably more terrifying than magical, but, you know, to each his own. (laughs) I just wanted to mention that Daniel Kaluuya just his presence on screen was electrifying and he carried with him this aura that I was just enraptured by throughout the film. And and I think you see that in um, the way that people responded to him and just wherever he went, it was like this, this strength that he carried in him and this aura. And I was captivated by that. And so I think he did an incredible job bringing that um, presence onto the screen for for Fred Hampton. I completely agree, Jen. Like he brought him to life so well from the, just the, you know, the way that he spoke, but then, I mean, just the, I guess the authority that he walked in, like, yeah. He just brought it to life in such a way. There was a point where um, he's talking to the guys that are in the other gang, and it just gave me chills because he never, you know, raises his voice, but he just walks in that, like, that strength under control, and I loved that. Yeah, like, even in, in these moments that were potentially dangerous, he never... uh past that anxiety or that fear to the people that he was with. He just, there was a a sense of caution, but never fear. And I would just, I wanted him on screen more so I could just be in his presence. And it was such a contrast to O'Neill and Lakeith did a a great job bringing this like, uh, just that, that look in his eyes of, of almost like, like a lost, um, puppy and just this like almost hopelessness and fear and anxiety that was constantly in Lakeith Stanfield's eyes as O'Neill. It was just, it was palpable. Um, And so the two of them on screen were just such stark contrasts to each other. And especially at the end when we saw like the real footage of Bill O'Neill and his little, you know, mannerisms and um, just the way that he would like move his face or move his eyes. 
And that really, really made me appreciate Lakeith Stanfield's performance because you can tell that he studied Bill O'Neill to get those like ticks down. And yeah, he both of them nailed it. They gave phenomenal performances. Definitely award worthy. Yes. Come on. We need Academy. Come on. Get it together recognize these people for the great work that they did in this movie. I'm so glad this is nominated for some of the Golden Globe categories because Ma Rainey and One Night in Miami is not for a lot of the categories. It's missing. So, you know, at least at least we got this one, but I hope the Academy does better. Man. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm upset by the Golden Globe nominations. Some of them are absolutely warranted, but some of them are not. And I just, I need the Academy to do better. Otherwise, our, like, Oscar (laughs) podcast episodes are just going to be me yelling and being angry about things. (laughs) And nobody wants to listen to that. So come on, Academy, do better. Yes. For the sake of all of all of the listeners. Because <laughs> it's our listeners that are the most important. Like, that is why they need to do better. Oh, man. <laughs> Although, a, a, a Sarah rant can be, can be a whole lot of fun sometimes. We'll save it for some, some other more worthy topics. And, yeah, absolutely. Though. Yeah, we got we to gotta use time. ranting strategically. So yes. we're not going to waste it on hopefully poor Academy Award nominations. <laughs> Hopefully this film will get recognized as it deserves. All right. Any last thoughts before we wrap up? Fred Hampton was 21 and he was that wise. Like this yeah. needs to be talked about. It's important. I am blown mm-hmm. away. That is all. Now I'm done. (laughs) It's so true. Man. All right. On that note, that's that's a good one to leave it on. Mic drop moment. All right. So this is our review and discussion of Judas and the Black Messiah. You can find it available on HBO Max to stream. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Strategic Whimsy Experiment. And as always, thank you so much, Carisha, for joining us and sharing all of your thoughts on this film. And we we just, we love it. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. It was fun, as always. Awesome. This podcast is fueled by our passion for stories and connection and is something we continue to do each week solely because we love it. This is our strategic whimsy experiment, and we encourage you to find a way to infuse a little whimsy into your day. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you tune into your favorite shows. Drop us a review, letting us know your thoughts about Judas and the Black Messiah. You can connect with us on Instagram at Strategic Whimsy Experiment, on Twitter at Strategic Whimsy, or you can always email us at strategicwhimsyexperiment at gmail.com. 
We will be back next week to discuss the film that has been nominated for many Golden Globe categories and uh, looks like it's quite a roller coaster ride. Promising young woman. We hope you guys have an amazing week and we will see you soon. Thank you.